Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Amen. And good morning, and welcome to the Lonely Sanctuary of Word of Life Church for Quarantine Sunday number nine. Oh Lord, how long? Well, we don't know how long. Um, not this month. Maybe in June. Maybe in June we will gather in some way back here at our sanctuary at Word of Life Church. Um, but let me say something. I want to be clear on something. Uh, Word of Life Church does not play political games. I'm grieved that in the midst of this crisis, we now have everything politicized. Well, Word of Life just opts out of that. We, we don't play that game, and so it's not, it's not what drives our decision-making. We want to gather. It's an important to gather. I mean, we're called to do that. It would only be an emergency that would prevent us from doing so. I mean, we don't even cancel services for snow Sundays. We never cancel. But we're not gathering right now. We want to, but we also want to love our neighbor as ourselves and act with prudence. And so in time, we will make a decision about how and when we're going to gather. We will pray. We will listen to wise counsel. Patience is the heart of wisdom. And the Holy Spirit will lead us. And when we make the decision, it will be the right decision. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are the captain of our salvation. You are the good shepherd of our soul. You are the cornerstone of the church. And we look to you and we call out to you and we ask that you would save us that you would guide us, that you would lead us. I pray that you would establish our spirit in faith, our soul in peace, and keep our bodies strong and healthy. Lord, I ask that we would be characterized by faith, hope, and love, not by fear and despair and frightened self-interest, but by faith, hope, and love. Holy Spirit, help me to preach now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. My sermon today is a tale of two psalms. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of credulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Well, that's a tale of two cities. I'm talking about a, a tale of two psalms. You know, here at Word of Life, we... We pray the psalms every day, right? And we base the psalm on the day of the year. And today is psalm, well, it's day 138, so it's psalm 138. And this is a psalm characterized by praise and trust. Yesterday was psalm 137. That's a full-on lament. And that is a psalm of lamentation and anger. Uh, well, we need both, and I want to look at both, and we're going to look at both today, but before I do that, let's just talk in general about the Psalms. Let's talk about the 150 poem prayers, song psalms that make up the Psalter. The Psalms are the prayers and songs of the ancient Jewish people. 
They're all somewhere around 3,000 years old, you know, maybe a little older, maybe the newest ones are 2,500 years old, but they're old, they're ancient, they're not new. Uh, And the Psalms uh, is the prayer book of the Jewish people, ancient and modern, and thus the Psalms was the prayer book of Jesus. Jesus was rooted deeply in the Psalms. This gave him vocabulary. He prayed these prayers. It influences how he thinks and what he says. In fact, Jesus in his ministry quotes from 10 different Psalms. Psalm 8, 22, 31, 35, 37, 41, 69, 78, 82, 110, and 118. So let's Strong evidence that Jesus' life was rooted in the practice of praying the Psalms. And so thus the church wisely adopted the Psalms as part of its prayer liturgy. And it's in our our Bibles, and the, the church prays from the Psalms. Now, as we pray through the 150 songs and prayers of the book of Psalms, we express the entire range of human emotional experience. So, as we are praying the Psalms day by day, and it takes us 150 days if we pray one a day to get through it, during that 150-day journey through the Psalms, we will hit every kind of common human emotion. There will be joy and peace and hope and faith and trust and assurance. There will be. But there will also be anger and sorrow and confusion. There'll be doubt and dismay and despair. That's all there too. What we do with the Psalms is we pray them. Uh, We don't read them, we pray them. Uh, I love to read the Bible. I'm a Bible reader. You know, I do that every day and I have for 45 years. but I, there's one book I don't read. I don't read the Psalms. I never just sit and read the Psalms like I would read. Well, right now I'm reading in Nehemiah and 1 Corinthians. But I would never just sit down and read the Psalms like that. I pray them. Every morning I'm praying the Psalm for the day, actually chanting the Psalm for the day. Because it is poetry. It is song. And so I chant it every day. I don't read it like I would read something else. I pray the Psalm. So Um, what we do is we take the vocabulary, the language of the Psalms, and we put it in our own mouth and make it our prayer. Now, here's what I've learned, though, over the years of taking the language of the Psalms, putting it in my mouth, and making it prayer, is that the Psalms are not always sweet. There are sweet Psalms. I think, you know, I mean, Psalm 23 is a sweet Psalm, but they're not all sweet. Some are salty, And some are bitter. I would say some are sour. Some are savory. You get get the whole whole range of taste when you take the Psalms and put them in your mouth and make them your prayers. Uh, And prayer shouldn't always be sweet anyway. Prayer that is all, you know what I mean by that? You know, people that just, their prayers are just always sweet. Just sweet. Um, Prayer that is always sweet is not honest prayer which means it's not prayer at all, it's just posing. And so we don't want to pose before God being sweet when that isn't reality. We want to be honest before God. We want to pray from the heart that which is the case. And so it isn't always sweet. Sometimes it's salty or bitter or whatever. 
Well, as I went through the Psalms this week, I did go through the Psalms, and as I went through them, I noticed that there's a, I don't know, there's at least, at least two dozen kinds of Psalms, categories of Psalms, themes of Psalms. I'm just going to give them to you. Um, I'm not saying this is exact. I think that there's 27 here, maybe something like that. But it's something that they give you an idea of the range of the Psalms. There's the laments, you know, the lamentations. There's the imprecatory Psalms. That's the Psalms of vengeance. There's the royal Psalms that have to do with, you know, about the king. There's the historical Psalms that recite the history of Israel. There's Psalms of repentance, Psalms of trust, Psalms of praise, Psalms of wisdom. Psalm, not, Psalm 90 would be, fall in that category, I think. Uh, psalms of petition, psalms of rebuke, where, where the psalmist is actually rebuking uh, those that would hear this psalm. Psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms that are pleas for justice. There are psalms of Zion. That is, that they, they sing about the place of the temple, Mount Zion. There are songs of, psalms of glory, psalms of joy, psalms that are pleas for deliverance from enemies. That's a very common one. Uh, there are psalms that are in praise of the Torah. Not only Psalm 119, there's others that are like that. There are the pilgrim psalms. These are the psalms of ascent that the pilgrims would sing as they went up to Jerusalem. There are psalms of complaint. That's a lot of them. Uh, songs that praise God for his creation. Psalms that are cries for help. Psalms that are centered on the temple and are for temple worship. There are psalms that come from the exile, psalms of covenant, psalms that pray for protection. There are psalms about Gentiles, sometimes calling the judgment of God down upon them, others times saying that, that eventually the God of Israel will be the God of the Gentiles. And there are psalms that are thanking God for victory, etc. And so you see that it's vast and it covers a lot of territory. We shouldn't try to make the psalms too nice already touched on that. They're not all sweet. Some are sour. We shouldn't make, try to make the psalms too sweet, and we shouldn't try to make the, song, the psalms too theological. I mean, they're songs after all. This is not prose. This is not theological prose. This is not academic theology. These are songs. These are poems. These are not the epistles of Paul. These are the songs of a suffering yet hopeful people. And that really does characterize Israel. So much of the time they're suffering and yet they maintain their hope largely because of the kinds of prayers they pray. The Psalms, with only a few exceptions, are not the voice of God addressing us, but rather the Psalms are the human voice of prayer in all of its wild emotions careening all over the road. The Psalms are not typically with a few exceptions, the, the Psalms are not God addressing us, but the human voice addressing God in prayer. That's what the Psalms are. And the, the Psalms aren't, how do I say it? The Psalms aren't perfect sonnets of timeless wisdom, but they are prayerful, human, very human speech. Have you ever noticed that uh, Psalms and Proverbs are next door neighbors in the Bible, right? They're right next to each other. Proverbs, Psalms, right next door. And even though they're right next door, they're very different. Proverbs and Psalms are very different. Proverbs mostly sees life as orderly and stable. Because, you know, this is the perspective of a king and the royal elite. These are the Proverbs of King Solomon, who lives in a palace and is the king of 
over this kingdom, and that's his experience, that life is stable and orderly. Um, in Proverbs, we see a world where those who keep the rules, obey God, keep the law, are faithfully rewarded, and those who break the rules, break the law, those that sin, the unrighteous, the wicked, are dutifully punished. And this is the stable world of the royal elite. So the good guys are blessed and the bad guys are punished. For example, Proverbs 11.8, the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. It's sure. Evil people will surely be punished. That's Proverbs 11.21. So those that sow righteousness get a sure reward. Evil people will surely be punished. And, you know, in the ultimate sense, ultimately, as God, you know, the final judgment, yeah, okay. But uh, it isn't always that way in the world in which we live, because most of us are not kings living in a palace, right? Uh, in the world of the king, in the world of the king of King Solomon, um, in the safe confines of the royal palace, just reward and proper punishment are seen as a sure thing. But the Psalms see a more complicated world. The Psalms give us the perspective from the bottom, from the outside, from the poor, from the forgotten. The Psalms give us prayers for an unpredictable world where just reward and proper punishment are not always a guaranteed outcome. So in the Psalms, we hear the bitter complaints from innocent victims of injustice. Surprising how many Psalms are that. Giving voice to a scapegoat often. To someone who has been vilified and set upon and turned upon, though the psalmist is innocent. And so the psalmist cries out for justice in a world of injustice. In the Psalms, we hear angry protests about the prosperity of the wicked. There are a lot of protest psalms in the Psalms. The psalmist protesting to God, saying, God, it's not right. That here I see the righteous, they're being trampled underfoot, but the wicked, they're prospering every day. In the Psalms, we hear the broken-hearted laments of exiles who have lost everything. Walter Brueggemann says this, the Psalms are not for those whose life is one of uninterrupted equilibrium. Such people should stay safely in the book of Proverbs. Rock on, Walter Brueggemann. I love that. The Psalms are not for those whose life is one of uninterrupted equilibrium. Such people should stay safely in the book of Proverbs. Well, uh, in, the, in the days of COVID-19, very few of us can now claim that our life is one of uninterrupted equilibrium. Our equilibrium has probably been disrupted, so maybe it's a season for us to really turn to the Psalms. The Psalms give us a vocabulary of honest speech that we can use before God. And this is very, very important. I can't stress how important this is, that we use honest speech before God. And why is it so important? Because we do great damage to our soul when we pray in a way that is disingenuous. It means that we are pretending in the presence of God. We are reinforcing a false self. We are trying to pray ourselves deeper into something that is untrue. 
So it's very important that we use honest speech in the presence of God, and that's what the Psalms do. Um, it's why the Psalms are earthy, raw, gritty, gutsy. They're honest is what they are. What the Psalms will do, it's the Jewish prayer book, and the Psalms will teach you how to pray like a Jew. Most Christians need to pray more like a Jew, at least in certain aspects. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, Jewish prayer isn't always pious. It isn't always polite. What it is, is it's always honest. To know what it is to pray like a Jew, think of Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. That's got to be my favorite musical. I know it's supposed to be Hamilton, but I've never seen it, so... I like Fiddler on the Roof. We were supposed to see it, Perry. We had tickets at the Kaufman Center. We had tickets to see Fiddler on the Roof, the Broadway production at the Kaufman Center. And this happened, and so we didn't get to see it. But I, I love Fiddler on the Roof. And if you want to know what honest prayer looks like, you look to Tevya. See if I can, see if I can channel Tevya. Since I didn't get to see him at the Kaufman Center, I'll have to. Here's my Tevya performance. Sometimes I wonder. When it gets too quiet up there, if you are thinking, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevya? It may sound like I'm complaining, but I'm not. After all, with your help, I'm starving to death. Oh, dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. Would it be so terrible if I had a small fortune? I know, I know. We are your chosen people. But once in a while, could you choose someone else? <laughs> that's Tevya. That's Jewish prayer. That's honest. Well, earlier I, I identified more than two dozen categories and themes and styles of, of the Psalms. But Bono says you can divide the Psalms into two basic categories. Gospel music and the blues. And he's right. If you want to forget, you know, the more than two dozen categories, you can pretty much, you can bring it down to two categories, gospel music and the blues. Well, if Psalm 137 is the blues, then Psalm 138 is the gospel. But we need both, and I want to look at both, so let's get ready to look at Psalm 137. Now, on August 28th, 587 B.C., the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, and took the survivors as captives and made them forced exiles in the foreign land of Babylon. It was the end of the world. It was the end of the Jewish world. So it seemed. And out of that unbearable pain, that unspeakable loss, some psalmist in exile writes this song. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. When we remembered you, O Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of that land. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors asked us for songs of joy. 
Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. That opening line is one of the saddest lines in the history of song. It's also unforgettable. It's brilliant. It's genius. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Here's a Jewish survival in forced exile in Babylon. The promised land is a thousand miles away. The temple, gone. He can no longer sit by the River Jordan. It's a thousand miles away. He now sits by the Tigris and the Euphrates, these foreign rivers. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept because of the profound, deep sense of dislocation. The psalmist feels, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. My life has been uprooted. I've been thrown into a place I never wanted to be. I had no say in it. I had the life I wanted, and now it's been ripped away from me, and I feel such profound dislocation. And he writes a song by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. Now, this unknown psalmist is, of course, a, a musician, maybe a singer, a songwriter. Maybe he served in the temple, I wonder. I wonder if he was one of the musicians, one of the singers in the temple. He goes on and says, we hung our harps upon the willows there. What, what, a, what a poignant picture of absolute despair. He's, he's hung up his harp on the, you know, we, you know weeping willows. Weeping, you know where, why they're called weeping willows? Because they're, they're, they're from Babylon. They're Babylonian. Uh, they're Salax. Babylonica is their scientific name. But everybody knows of willows from Psalm 137. And so the world over, they're known as weeping willows because of this psalm. That's how famous this song turns out to be by this guy in absolute despair who's a musician. Uh, but this survivor psalmist, he's, he's given up on his music. He's just going to hang up his guitar. He's going to hang up his harp. He says, I'm done. I can't sing any songs here. Uh, when when the, the Babylonian captors ask to hear one of the famous songs of Zion, he says, I just can't do it. Of course, this is a song, so he is doing it. They wanted to hear, though, a song of mirth, a song of joy, one of the praise songs of Zion. He says, I can't do it. I got a song for you, though. And he doesn't give them what they want. He gives them this lament by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. I hung my harp on the willow because I couldn't sing the songs of Yahweh, the songs of Zion, the songs of the Lord in a foreign land. It's a song, but it's the blues. It's a lament. It's a lamentation. Now, as Americans, we are loath to lament because, as Walter Brueggemann says, we're schooled. In denial. That's the American program. It's one, of the, it's one of the pathologies of a superpower that sorrow is seen as weakness and therefore must not be admitted and must not be expressed. And therefore we can't get healed. It just stays deep within us and, and festers. So instead of giving expression to our pain, which would be the normal thing, 
uh, brought out into the open where it can begin to heal. We're scripted to hide our pain and suppress our sorrow. And I'll tell you, there's tons of denial going on in America right now, that's for sure. Well, the psalmist in exile has hung up his harp and written his last song, a bitter lamentation of dislocation. But it turns out that the songwriting career of the psalmist in exile is not over. Because by exercising some of his sorrow through lament, the psalmist has created space for something other and a new song is born. We call it Psalm 138. It goes like this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. Hold on. He's just written his blues song. How can I sing the, the Lord's song, the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land, a pagan land, a Gentile land? There's all these pagans and false gods and idols. How can I sing the Lord's song here? That's what he says in Psalm 137. But in 138, something has happened. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. Yesterday, he couldn't sing the praise songs of Yahweh in Babylon. Now he says, you know what? I can, and I'm going to. I like that. So the lament has purged his soul of enough pain to create something, room for something new. He's gone from the blues. He's moving into gospel now. Verse 2. I will bow down toward your holy temple and praise your name because of your love and faithfulness. For you have glorified your name and your word above all things. All right, the temple is gone in Jerusalem, still a thousand miles away. But the psalmist leans in the direction of that which he believes will come. We call that hope. Verse 4. When I called, you answered me. You increased my strength within me. That's what we do in times of trouble. We call upon the Lord. Now, it may not always change our outward circumstances, but if we will stay in the place of honest prayer, what it will do is bring us inner strength. So we can't always guarantee that by praying we're going to change the outward circumstances, but we can hold on to the promise that we will be strengthened in the inner man by the grace of the Lord. Yes. Verse 5. All the kings of the earth will praise you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. They will sing of the ways of the Lord, that great is the glory of the Lord. So the psalmist anticipates a day when the word of Yahweh will become king of the nations. Ooh, that's pretty good. Verse 7, though the Lord be high, he cares for the lowly. He perceives the haughty from afar. So it's not the high and mighty. It's not the big shots. It's not the status climbers. It's not the upper echelon. It's not the 1% who are nearest to the care of the Lord. It's the humble and lowly. That's why we're told three times in Scripture, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And lament is the language of the humble. The proud have to pretend that everything's fine when it's not. And so they cut themselves off from the grace of the Lord. 
Lament is the language of the humble, and God gives grace to the humble. Verse 8, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you keep me safe. You stretch forth your hand against the fury of my enemies. Your right hand shall save me. You notice that the, the, the psalmist has found now a new spirit, a new attitude. Attitude's almost everything. By lamenting, he's got that poison out of him, and something new has come in. And even though his circumstances haven't changed, he has the anticipation of God helping him, God delivering him, God taking care of him. And then finally, the psalm closes with verse 9. The Lord will make good his purpose for me. O Lord, your love endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. You know what that is? That's the good news of Romans 8.28, six centuries before it was penned by the Apostle Paul. That is essentially saying that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. You can hold on to that. Why? Because nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. It endures forever. Paul says, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that nothing shall separate me from the love of God in Christ. Not life or death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor pandemics, nor economic shutdowns. Nothing's going to separate me from the love of God we have in Jesus Christ. And that's why Julian of Norwich can say, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.